and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, uh, as I tell them, I tell them this, my own personal uh, uh, kind of guiding light through this punk rock journey in, in a moral compass kind of capacity from some of my favorite bands ever, Martin Sorondagai from Limprist, from Crudos, from Needles, from What the Fuck Fanzine, from Lingua Armada Records, from so much amazing stuff. We will get to most of this stuff in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me or the podcast, head over to the email address turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it. Letting everyone know that a couple times a week, normally a couple times a week, uh, I put up uh, an interview with someone who is, you know, involved with punk. And then we just talk about music. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. And a huge thank you to people that do do that. It, it really is appreciated. Uh, you can also support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and checking out some of the stuff we do over there that we put up, uh, you know, bonus episodes, footnotes, uh, all sorts of fun, interesting sort of stuff. So check that out. Uh, if you are so inclined and a huge thank you to people that do do that and support the podcast that way, because it really does help keep this show going. And speaking of keeping this show going, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket and help me kind of cover the cost of doing this thing, which go figure there are costs with doing a free podcast. Um, and, uh, they have, you know, they, they're, uh, support helps keep this thing going. So thank you to them for that. And uh, House of Vans are back. So check out the House of Vans back in Chicago coming up. You know, it's, it's all coming back. And, you know, and speaking of coming back, the band I play in Fucked Up will be going on tour in the new year, hopefully. Uh, shows are kind of selling quickly. So grab tickets now at fuckedup.cc. It will be in celebration of David Comes to Life hitting the 10 year mark. Holy God that has flown by. Uh, you can find the reissue of that coming out on Matador records soon in more information at, uh, fucked You can also find out more information on, uh, I, th I think fucked up CC.cc is still going. The fuck up's got like, you're we're on social media. I think there's, you know, there's places to find out this information. Matador Records is going to be putting it out. You can find out information on Matador Records website, I'm sure, as well. Uh, also, our friends at Get Better Records are going to be putting out Epics in Minutes, Fucked Up's uh, initial singles compilation. So if you only like the early years of Fucked Up, you're in luck. It's finally coming out in one convenient place on vinyl after all these years. So people can stop asking me about this. And you will be able to pick that up very soon. Head over to getbetterrecords.com. I think that's it. If not, uh, you know, Google that thing, search it, and you will find out more information about that release and pre-orders. I think they're almost done, the pre-orders, actually, to be honest with you. And speaking of pre-orders being kind of done, I think, but there's ways to still order it. Our good buddy, Scotty Karate at Tank Crimes Records has been 
tasked with putting the 90-minute one-song Year of the Horse onto vinyl, and you can pick that up over there at Tank Crime Records. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, Martine. Now, this is someone who, as I tell him, is a, a massive influence on me, A huge plays a huge role in kind of my journey in punk rock and someone that I'm a huge fan of, like one of the greatest front people ever, ever. I can't think of too many people I've seen kind of hold a room in the palm of their hand, the way he is able to. And obviously what, you know, he's, he does on stage varies from the band he's in and kind of like the tone it takes and stuff, but it's always captivating. And he's, you know, the voice is incredible too. And the stage presence and all this sort of stuff. But in addition to this, also a brilliant photographer, I could go on like this whole thing could be spent just reading over Martin's resume. And this is someone who I've wanted to come on to the show forever. I tried to send a DM there, you know, I don't think it ever got there. Anyway, there's been some uh, confusion about what happened with the DM, but Tristan, thank you, Tristan, for believing uh, was like, you know what, let me reach out to Martine and see what's up and hit it, Martine. And Martine was like, of course, I'd love to do it. And so here we are. And you are going to get to hear it. And oh my gosh, it's worth the wait. It is awesome to get to have this sort of conversation with him. Because this thing was done over video, at one point, I hold up a copy of the Fungus Among Us comp with a purple cover. This will make a lot of sense when you get to this part of the episode, but just try and bear that in mind. Also, in the tradition of many great wrestling matches and horror movies, and not that this is either of those things, but there is a false finish. So just bear that in mind too. Okay, that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Martin Sorondagai on Turned Out a Punk. Awesome. Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you for inviting me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, this has been um like you're like as I was just saying, literally before we clicked record, you're kind of like for me, like my personal Ian Mackay. Like a lot of people come on the show and talk about how Ian Mackay kind of like plays like a devil angel role sitting on their shoulders in terms of punk rock and is sort of like this moral compass for them. And by the time I got going to shows and everything like Fugazi were kind of just like, you know, occupied, I think a different space. So for me, it's always been you and the work uh, that you do in all your bands that I kind of hold you or not. I hold myself to kind of like, what would Martine think? And <laughs> how would Martine think this would play out? <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, but I mean, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I don't know where you go with that, but I just want to lay that out there first. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I was I've always just been doing what I do and being who I am. And, you know, if it resonates with somebody, great, you know, but I never sought out to be that kind of person. But I mean, not that I would evade it or avoid it, but if it's what it is, you know, it is what it is. I just always wanted to be super proactive in the things that I did with punk or music or art or whatever. And um, yeah, so that's, thank you. I'm honored to hear that. Thank you. Well, there's that week that 
Crudos came to Toronto and you guys did shows, I think, in a couple of the suburbs. You know, you did Steve Perry's radio show, did mm-hmm. who's Emma show, 360 show. I, mm-hmm. I, that week was such a defining week of my life. You know, I look back at that week as being like a, a pivotal time, you know, and mm. so I got to thank you for that. Mm. Thank you. I remember some details about some of those shows. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to get probably not there, but we're going to try and get to some point in the late 90s by the time this thing's over. But I got to start it off the way they all start off, which is, Martine, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? The first time, you know, it, it's funny because I was trying to think back. I always credited my cousins in New York uh, for exposing me to punk. But there was, you know, I I had visited them in 1979 with my family. And that was the first time I was listening to some punk records. Um, But I actually was a kiss freak when I was a kid. So um, I used to buy these kiss pinup magazines and i still have them from when i was a kid and (laughs) there's one yeah there's this one called grooves oh yeah i still have it and they had inside of it the first article i'd ever seen about punk and it has the dead boys it has the ramones the Rosillos, sham 69 blondie now of course some of it like blondie i knew ramones i knew Sex Pistols I had heard of, but, you know, the Rosillos and, you know, some like, you know, it mentions a few other bands that was like, I wasn't going to find a Rosillos record, you know, at that time. It's 1978 when this came out, and that's when I read it, but it was in 79 when I went on a family trip to see my cousins in New York, and they actually had, you know, never mind the Bullocks, they had Ramones, not just Ramones records, they had Ramones ticket stubs, like on their mirror in their room and stuff. So they had seen the Ramones. That's awesome. Um, you know, turns out my cousin, he he had seen several, several bands, a lot of bands, actually. Um, but, you know, that was sort of my first exposure i mean i had heard the. i used to watch don krishner's rock concert like and the ramones would come on so it was like stuff like that i knew but it was a, uh, you know the, clearly there was a lot happening in 78 79 that was much more underground and i wouldn't find out about that till later on but um you know hearing about punk i've heard a punk early on i just didn't get exposed too much to it so well, it's exactly like they weren't even playing Kiss on the radio. I imagine too much at that point. Like, no, they would. I mean, Beth was a huge song. Beth, I guess so, Beth would. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Beth was huge. You know, so you would hear Beth pretty regularly on the radio. But, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, the Ramones you wouldn't hear so much on commercial radio. It would have to be you watching some late night TV and then getting exposed. And then, you know, it just came at me at different points. You know, I, I was a kid who loved watching TV. So like I said, late night would be like Don Krishna's rock concert. And then when the eighties rolled in, we, you know, we didn't have cable in Chicago. Like we didn't. So, you know, I would watch Saturday night live. I saw the fear footage when it actually was aired. Oh you yeah. Know? And I, I, I remember that. I remember seeing like late night TV with the plasmatics and just being like, oh, my God, she's so wild. You know, I remember there was some late night TV and it was 81 
I want to say it was 81 that they aired Erg the Rock Wars. Um, and seeing just a ton of bands on this, but being really frightened when I saw the cramps footage. Because, you know, I was still pretty young and seeing Lux with his pants kind of almost falling off and him no shirt on and just, you know, jamming this mic in his mouth and making crazy sounds. It kind of fucking scared me. I was like, what is this? You know? <laughs> so um, I don't know, you know, punk always kind of came at me in these weird little ways and it was always exciting and intriguing and, you know, elements of fright or fear in it. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was super cool, you know, um, you know, and being a kiss freak, you were like, I definitely wanted something that was a little off, you know, yeah. makeup theatrics, any of that. It just seemed interesting to me, you know, but I think when I saw, you know, like that cramps, it just seemed so stripped down and raw and kind of like, I don't know, something that seemed too accessible and real because there was no hiding behind makeup or costume. It was just Lux and it was wow <laughs> it was crazy. It's, it's funny doing the show now finding out more about them from people that were around them back then like how real it was like you're saying it, it's kind of like it seems like the the on stage and the off stage were like you know they weren't you know jamming microphones or vomiting walking down the street but like they were weird people like it was a legit thing that they were on stage yeah i mean i don't know you know i just think you know in the same footage and not the same footage but the same video you saw like scoffish from chicago yeah. you know and i was just like wow who's this person you know or you would watch some other band you know but then the cramps footage you were just like man like what what is going on you know and i don't know i thought that was interesting you know so but then there were other things that just felt really punk to me like singing you know, Saturday Night Live with David Bowie, Joey Arias, and who was the third person? Klaus Nomi. Like they were all in skirts and doing this. And it was just like this moment where you're like, okay, these motherfuckers are freaks and they're scaring me. And they're, but I'm, I can't, it's like a crash. You can't look away from it. Yeah. You're like, I'm into this. And it would really kind of mark me in a way that I really appreciate later on in life, you know, going, wow, that was something, you know, especially for television, you know? Well, and as you're saying, like, they're not playing this stuff on the radio. Like it feels like late night TV, was such a conduit for people like and once again chicago is you know a media center but like for people in other places snl with these b52 performances or devo performances are just mm. like so important yeah yeah absolutely so where did you kind of go from you know seeing these sort of like brief encounters with it like what was what, what was your first actual concert even pre-punk i'd say my, my first concert ever I would have to say it was Joan Jett and the Black Hearts. It was Whoa. 1981 and they played the Taste of Chicago. Um, yeah, that was my first concert. And um, it was cool. I loved it. I mean, she started with Bad Reputation, which is a fucking cut. And she just, you know, I think what it was is, so I went with my friend whose both parents were cops. 
And they actually propped us up on these, I don't know what they were like drums or not drums, but I mean like tubs, like they propped us up so we could see the back of Joan, but we could see part of the audience. And as soon as she started, I just remember security punching people and yanking people out by their hair. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is crazy. Like, what, what, what the hell is going on? But it was like kind of brutal. But you're like, I think there was that moment where you're like, man, mainstream America is afraid of rock and roll. <laughs> like, they really are like real just, you know, and at that time, it just seemed, you know, this is like Taste of Chicago. It's like family fun. And, you know, clearly people went there who wanted to fucking get into it, you know, and, yeah. and rockers and man, you just saw people getting like the shit kicked out of them. It was really bizarre. But I mean, that was my first, I think, legit like rock and roll show, you know, with Stone Jet and the Blackhearts. That's a pretty awesome one. Well, that's like a punk show for your first show. Yeah. I mean, for that time, I mean, it seemed kind of like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, some people would probably beg to differ, but I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and <laughs> you know? she's a runaway. She produced, like, you know, the germs and stuff. Like, you know, like, Jones Jones got it kind of unlocked for being a punk rocker. Yeah, and, you know, and you know, I saw a few other things throughout the years. I, I, that same sort of big city fest, the Go-Go's came in 84, and I saw that. But in terms of really DIY, hardcore punk shows, I didn't start really till the end of 84, beginning of 85, really going to those shows, you know. But in that time, you know, I was also doing a very different thing in life. Like, I, I grew up in an area where there wasn't a rock and roll neighborhood necessarily, you know, and I, I, I was really into b-boying and breakdancing and I was spinning on my head while, you know, other people were probably going to see, you know, early naked ray gun shows or whoever was coming through town, you know, or like strike under or whatever. But it was like, I was, I was a b-boy really early on, you know? Well, I remember seeing you breakdance in that Toronto week we talked about and just my mind being blown you were dancing on cardboard outside of a show well you know i always said you know when we would go on these tours i was like man if we don't make a fucking dollar you know what i'll just dance on the street i'll get his <laughs> ass money like i was ready yeah i was ready it was like i still knew how to dance it was like you don't forget that you know but i like i mean somebody will be into it and they'll give us like a few bucks <laughs> Well, you know, and you brought it up with that Joan Jett show, Chicago is a really tough town. Like, I think that's been my experience going there is that, you know, even in, in punk and hardcore, like there is like, it is a, a town that doesn't take a lot of shit and stuff can pop off anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Chicago is, uh, you know, it, it's weird. I, I have a real sort of love hate with Chicago. Like I, I grew up here. I mean, I've been here since I was two years old. Um, I don't know. You know, it's weird because I hear people these days be like, oh, my God, I love Chicago. You know, they've come and visited and they normally their visit is like downtown north. You know, <laughs> I'm a South Sider. So it's like I grew up on the South Side and you're right. It, it's always been kind of a no fucking nonsense town. And um has a very rough edge to this day. It's it's got a lot of lot of edge, you know, and a lot of crazy shit. It's still super gang infested, and 
you know, they, they truly kind of rule shit. So it's, mm. it's, it's kind of frightening sometimes, but, you know, and even in, I think the punk scene, it always just kind of was a little on the rough side, you know, yeah. um, you know, yeah. How much awareness did you have of the stuff that was going on at that time? Like you mentioned, you know, Nate Kid Reagan and Strike Anywhere. Like, would you be like hearing about those bands, obviously being someone that was a fan of some rock and roll stuff? Or is it just you know super what? underground? No, no, it was so underground for me. I mean, I heard of Ministry early on, you mm. know, and it was during their uh, Work for Love era. I know they had played some big uh fest with the police is up my friend she went and she played like a ministry song for me and she played that work for love and it was more their like new wave era stuff but like naked reagan stuff that didn't come at me until a couple years later and that was my first sort of more underground punk show was a naked reagan show you know mm. um and you know that for me i was ready for it um you know, I had been b-boying for a while and the scene of that was kind of dying down and we would always dance at clubs and, you know, that was a great experience for me. Like I, I had been on TV with like Curtis Blow and, what? you know, yeah. And I was in the Mr. T movie, like just kind of shit. How do like I not that. know this stuff? This is mind blowing to me. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I don't know. I Some people know. I don't always talk about it, but it was like a really important time for me, I think, in, in Chicago, especially for the fact that, you know, it was during that time that I, you know, growing up here, you know, we lived by code in Chicago. Kids who grow up on the streets of Chicago, you know, like black with any color is a gang color. You know, it's like mm. you can't cross your arms any certain way. You can't wear a hat like and angle it or put it in it because it's all code. It's all gang shit. So during that b-boying time, that was the first time ever that I could seriously cross these gang lines. And it was OK because I was a dancer. You know, I wasn't seen as a potential threat. I wasn't, you know, I can go in areas that most people are like, shit, don't go over there. You know, you better be careful, blah, blah, blah. So that was really nice. And then, you know, when I kind of was, you know, that scene was dying down, I, um, I started kind of just wanting punk. I knew about it already. And I remember like one of the guys that used to, you know, be a b-boy with me, he's like, what are you going to do, man? Like, what's going to happen? I was like, I'm going punk. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I said. It's like, <laughs> I'm going punk. And it made sense to me. I was ready for it. So, you know, it, it was kind of stepping into an unfamiliar world because I didn't know how that scene worked. I was used to going to like this club called Janelle's, like that was on the north side that was like, you know, all Latino, like fucking house music, you know, B-boys, like there was another world, you know, and then I go to a Naked Reagan show and I'm just like, what the fuck? And I'm kind of looking around and fucking, you know, early Naked Reagan shows were pretty nuts. Like it was, I always say it was raining bodies, you know, it was just like, <laughs> you know, three girls like locked around each other, triple stage diving, like flipping off stage That's and awesome. huge pits. And it was, it was pretty insane. It was awesome. It was awesome. And I, and I, I was hooked. So I was going to see everything. And, you know, from that point on any show, I was still in high school and any show that I could go to, and I didn't have money. So I started listening to the college radio stations and, 
you know, we had a great radio show up north called Fast and Loud on WNUR, and Rodney would play great stuff. I was hearing the Bad Brains, Agnostic Front, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but it was way up north, and I lived on the south side, so it was hard to reach it, so I used to just hit record on my tape deck, grab the antennas, and just lean against the wall with my arms extended, (laughs) and I would get it, and I would stand there for the whole our show of fast and loud and then finally be like oh my god okay turn it off and then go back and listen to it and just absorb all this music um so you know i started winning tickets so i like oh circle jerks are coming one tickets you know the damned are coming i won tickets x are coming i won tickets so i would just like constantly listen to college radio to snag free tickets for a show <laughs> and that's what i did you know for a long time I find going back to the, the the time where you're kind of crossing over between the b-boy stuff and the punk stuff, I guess with the b-boy stuff, were you dancing mainly to house music or was it to hip hop or a combination? It's a combo. So Chicago's house, house, house mm-hmm. to death, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I love house music. I mean, we all the punks in Chicago, especially on the south side, we all grew up on house music, you know, um, you know, even my brother-in-law, who's like, you know, was way in the metal when he was a kid. He goes, you knew house. Everybody knew house. It was just played everywhere, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, it was a lot of house music. um, And there was like the sort of early hip hop stuff, you know, or B-boy stuff. So um, I used to love the Tila Rock and Jazzy J 12 inch. It's yours. That to me, the bass on that still kills, you know, (laughs) but you know, there was, you know, I mean, I, I I kind of, you know, with the beauty of me being young and sort of, I really was just kind of listening and absorbing everything and anything that came my way. And you filtered out what you didn't like and you kept what you loved, you know, and mm-hmm. that's how it was. So, I, I mean, that's how I always, you know, look at that. So, yeah. Were there any Chicago MCs back then? I'm trying to, I was racking my brain trying to think of some. Well... There must have been, obviously, but like it just seems like it was so oversaturated by stuff that was coming out of New York, I guess, at the time. I mean, New York and, and you know, mainly New York and a little bit of L.A. stuff was huge in terms of MCs. I can't really. Early, I mean, I remember. I mean, as a B-boy, we judged the first ever graffiti contest in Chicago, wow. so it was like my crew was and me and some other b-boys from other crews we were judges for the first ever graffiti contest and then i'm thinking in terms of mc there were a couple cats that showed up and would battle each other but there was no big name that happened a little bit later it Mm -hmm. seemed you know and i mean my my brain is failing me in my 50s a little bit but i i don't remember a really big name person from chicago to be honest it's also interesting how, like, in New York, you know, Freddie Alva's book that came out, like, you do see there's a crossover between hip-hop and graffiti and punk rock. It seems like a lot more than any other place at that time. Like, certainly a lot more than Chicago, as you're saying, where you're, like, the only person. Like, were there other people kind of crossing over, gravitating with you, or is it, like, a solo mission? It was kind of a solo mission. And then I found later on other people who had crossed over. Mm. But at the time, in the beginning... I would say there were a few of us. It was like me, my friend Pablo, my sister Cross. You know, we we kind of got into stuff. Um, and we, again, we were really young and just kind of taking in everything. But, you know, it was really beautiful. I mean, some people, I think, in the very early days, I don't know how many people would 
you know, be super vocal about that they liked everything because then it's like people kind of look at you a little weird like mm -hmm. oh well you should be this or you should just be that right um but yeah i mean we you know it was funny because we we found like a ton of kids from our areas and when i say our areas it would be like pilsen little village back of the yards like brighton park wherever and we just started kind of gluing together um sort of like a strength in numbers kind of thing to go to shows because yeah you know we were talking about Chicago being pretty aggressive and weird you know riding the trains late at night to go to show it felt very good to be a, a crew of 20 of us or 15 of us because nobody would fuck with us yeah. when we were on our own or two or three of us there were problems you know mm -hmm. so yeah um but yeah the crossing over I don't know there were a few people but I, I don't know it wasn't like a massive scene of people crossing over. So were you already shooting photographs at this time or when do you, when did photography enter your life? You know, it really entered into my life when punk was kind of rolling around. Cause I was a senior in high school. My family pitched in and bought me my first camera, but I wouldn't dare take it to a show. Like I would watch people get their asses kicked at shows. And I was like, uh, uh like I grew up in a neighborhood where I'm like you don't fucking flash you don't pull money out of your pocket in front of people you don't pull anything out of value in front of people like so I was like I'm not taking this gift you know that my family pitched in to give me at a show because I saw the way people would get beat up or jumped by like skins or whatever you know and I was like uh, uh if they're gonna beat my ass beat my ass but you're not gonna steal my camera so yeah. unfortunately i i didn't get to photograph a lot of the early shows that i went to because of that you know um it wasn't until some time later that i felt a little more sort of like people got to know me a little more in the scene and i felt a little better it wasn't until a little later that i started photographing shows so did it, it feels like, you know, the scene when you were obviously you're, you're photographing bands during this time, like a little bit later on, like it feels like it's, it's a lot closer knit or it is a really close knit scene. Is it, did it start getting smaller? Like did the violence chase people off like it did in Los Angeles and some other places? Yeah, it did. I, I, you know, you saw it happening. I think the very early scene just started disappearing. People stopped going to shows, you know, mm -hmm. um, so you saw kind of a shift happening. Um, you know, it's weird. I know people are like, oh, you know, I just left. It was bullshit. And it's like, yeah, but you left all of us kids there to put up with this craziness. But then, you know, I think there got a point where the really violent assholes who would come to these shows, I think they got bored. And they're like, there's not a bunch of people to, around anymore to really pick on and beat up on and stuff. And they just kind of stopped. It seemed like, going to shows like there weren't that many of them after a while it seemed you know um and then you know I think because we always rolled in a bigger crew I think we felt a little more protected you know because there was you know you weren't on your own or just you and one friend there would be like 10 of you or 15 of you you know so mm -hmm. but um yeah, I would say that shows just started getting smaller you know when they moved from the cabaret metro you know, they kind of went back into the Cubby Bear and Dreamers, Club Dreamers, and Dreamers are small, but then, you know, these shows that you would like, I think the first time I saw 
you know, MDC was at the Metro, you know, and it was like, you know, there were like 500, 600 people there and then they're playing, you know, dreamers and there's 200 people like, yeah. you know, just, you just saw the numbers dip in shows. And then it was just kind of like super DIY shit. And then you're in basement shows with maybe 70 people, you know? Well, I think that's when Chicago gets super exciting for me. Like, obviously I love all the old Chicago stuff, but like that scene that you're talking about when everyone's back in the basement and it's all, all your band, all like your, yourself and all these other bands doing completely different things, but you're all somehow coexisting. Like, I think that's what makes that scene so special is just, and also like all the places this stuff goes, like this is the blueprint for punk music going forward. Like, you know, from cap and jazz to Los Crudos to like, smoking popes even like the pop punk stuff too it's like so much of it comes out of chicago yeah yeah well you know you started to see i would say you know there was like the underdog record scene there was the whole screeching weasel thing like that was sort of the beginnings of these bands kind of doing something that wasn't you know, necessarily wanting to play the big clubs, right? Mm -hmm. So everything was like smaller and it, it kind of created a new scene, you know? And at the same time too, we were paying attention to, you know, this energy and attitude of, you know, some of the Bay Area bands. I always talk about the first time I saw Christ on Parade. Um, something about their energy and the way they were at the show now, this was a metro show it was a pretty crazy show it was like seven seconds christ on parade indigesty youth of today it was all on one bill and it was a fucking awesome show but you know, were great right yeah. it's like seven seconds were great everybody was great but to watch like these dudes i saw these dudes that look super punk i mean super punk right fucking in the pit like arms around people like smiling i was like these people are smiling like who are they like who are these dudes like i've never seen them before and then it's like i think in the gisty finished and it was like next up christ on parade from san francisco and then you know that's what they said and these dudes went from being right down here with us and jumped up on stage to play and i was like what they didn't come from behind stage <laughs> you know there was something really cool about that and their energy i was like man that is the coolest shit who are these dudes like they're not being like ag aggressive or like threatening they're being really friendly and i was like oh man there's something super cool about that you know yeah. um so i don't know we were you know i think people started kind of looking to other places you know we didn't I think we were all getting tired of the kind of borderline super rock and rolly attitude or just this angry, like, we're like, we want something else. Like we want to have fun. We love music, you know, mm -hmm. and we love this. So anywhere where we could find really cool vibes or cool people, we were, we were into it, you know? I think that's also like you're saying, it's, it's, it's that death of sort of that rock star ambition. Like these bands didn't want to play the big places, and so you have that sort of complete change in attitude where like the band goes from, cause even like early hardcore, there's just almost like that putting people on pedestals and sort of that hierarchy between band and fan that's happening. Yeah. And it's not really until the nineties that you see that completely dissolve. And it's because it's so small. 
Well, I think, you know, there's a thing that happens and, you know, there may be people who say, oh, no, it wasn't like that. And it's like, no, maybe the band didn't necessarily play into that, but people seem to put bands in that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's like some bands probably played it up, you know, we're into it. But I also find that that happens sometimes even with me where people want to put you on some sort of pedestal. And I'm just like, fuck, man, let's just hang out and talk and shoot the shit and whatever. Let's let's eat together or something. You know what I mean? I want to hang out. I want to get to know you, you know, and some people, you know, they, I don't know. It's weird. You know, I, I think it just depends. But I think there were bands who were definitely cool. I mean, I remember doing a fanzine with friends and getting to finally cross that line with Naked Raygun and going to Jeff Pizzotti's apartment. And, you know, we were coming from the South side. So we bought them all Polish sausages and we we're like, and they were like, what? You brought us Polish sausage. They were so impressed and super stoked. And we did an interview with them and it was kind of nice to kind of just cross that and blur that line a little bit, you know? Um, but, you know, with the, like I said, the underdog scene, the screeching weasel scene, all that, that really started becoming more just like, just smaller and even inevitably that even got big at some point, but it was mm-hmm. nice to kind of experience it in a different way and really feel like you were a part of something versus some promoter creating everything for you or creating that space for you, you know? Yeah. And was that the first thing you did? What the fuck? Yes, we did. What the fuck fanzine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a really obscure zine. It's terrible. Like our writing, we were kids, you know, so it's not a good zine, you know, but then again, you know, I have tons of zines and I read some of them. I'm like, wow, this is really good. This is really smart. This is a cool article. And then you have a lot. You're like, wow, this is so dumb. I'm like, so I don't feel so bad. No, and I, and I think it's the most honest form of journalism for music too, right? You know what? It was critical. I think it really sort of, um, you know, really uh, blew life into, you know, the fucking world of punk, right? Was the fanzine, mm-hmm. you know? It was like every person who did a zine and wrote about you know, bands. It's like, I mean, even stuff like, I mean, I don't know. It's like, you could see like every zine covered Black Flag, you know, at some point, you know, or like Hoops do. It's like, and that's because people were talking about these bands. People were into these bands were touring, you know, it's like, you won't see that many zines with maybe, I don't know, more obscure bands, right? But you're going to see the bands who are hitting every town show up in every freaking zine or you were that person like fucking baboon dooley artist dude who sent his cartoons to every zine i have probably a thousand eighteen and he's in every one so that dude was literally hustling and getting his work out yeah it's insane well, it's, it's also like you think about the era we're in now and, and just like, uh, you know, my kids and YouTube and the things they love on there and social media, like this is the precursor to that. Like this is where you could put out your own media and you could express your own thoughts for better or for worse and, and give them to the world and like, and, and also give other people platform, like, you know, a random artist or like a friend to write a column. Like it really was an, an on-ramp to, to making media. 
Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. It's interesting because, you know, so much of punk gets, you know, put under the microscope, you know, especially in the academy academics and stuff where they're, you know, analyzing punk and it's like, you know, I'm being really critical of it and it's okay, but you have to put it in its context and people need to realize like that zine that you're talking about or was done by a fucking 14 year old. Yeah. Okay. Now I don't know what university today, this day and age would allow a 14 year old kid to come <laughs> up at the mic and start telling you what they fucking believe in. It's absurd, right? People would be like, Oh, hell no, they never, but it's like, that's what they're doing. They're analyzing the works of teenagers, of kids on occasion, a 22 year old, but it's, it's really a lot. I mean, I have zines that were made that are crazy zines made by like a 14 year old, you mm -hmm. know? And you're like, this person was doing this in 1981 or 82, 83, whatever. And you're like, whoa, like, you know, some more stuff in there. And I bring that up because I love collecting, you know, old fanzines and stuff. And it's just, it's bonkers, some of it. So, but, and also that's like one of the only places that you would have the reflections of a 14 year old from the right. 80s. Right. It's beautiful. I think it's amazing. There's something to be said, like you're talking about the creation of media with zero resources, mm -hmm. like next to nothing, you know, and some of these productions are, are pretty fucking awesome. Like some of these zines are pretty amazing. Um, the, the quality, the layout, like whatever, you know, you're just like, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's it, it there's something really amazing to be said about that era and just the production of of putting, you know, your ideas and what you're into out there into the world without knowing like what's going to be thought of it 40 years later, you know. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and no expectation that anyone would care about it 40 minutes later. Uh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's funny cuz like when uh, Bruce LeBruce was on and talking mm -hmm. to him about you know like like jds and and all the stuff the fifth column people were doing at the same time mm -hmm. and just sort of like how this was his way of of creating a culture like this was his way of creating what he wasn't seeing what he wanted in the punk scene so he decided to just create an idealized version in a fanzine and then essentially willed that world into existing by putting it out into the world right right yeah uh, where, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that the first what the fuck record stuff that you do because obviously there's okay. a fungus among us comp a, mm -hmm. a classic Chicago comp but <laughs> built on blood what a track listing it's kind of wild right yeah <laughs> like misery and mega city four on a compilation together is the coolest shit ever well you know it was it was my friend Tom Tom Coyne and I Tom was, you know, just, he's this friend of mine who was super into punk. I think he went to the UK in 84 mm. and he, you know, he had his contacts and connections. I met him and his girlfriend at the time. They were, we just became friends. We're like, Hey, you know, we were in, a, it was a time when anybody who looked remotely punk, like alternative, <laughs> I mean, today you would never do this, but at that time, um, you looked remotely punk. I was running a block to catch up with you and be like, who are you? Hey, are you into punk? Let's hang out. <laughs> it was that easy. You're into punk. So am I. So are we. Let's hang out. 
where you like, where do you live? What are you doing? What are you doing? Right. Like we wanted to become your friend because we were so desperate to connect with other punks. Well, Tom was one of those people that I think we might've met at a show and just started talking and we became really good friends and him and I together, you know, we got really interested. Well, the first thing I had done was the fungus among us comp, right? So it had a Bhopal cis, which is pre peg boy. Um, It had screeching weasel, Tony Brummel's old band, only the strong gear, Uh, gear, vermicious canids who actually is a, you know, that was a, you know, unfortunately, you know, I should have pressured them to give me a song with vocals on it, but they thought they were going to do a seven inch and it never happened. It was a bummer. And I should have put really been like, I don't care if it's a repeat song. Let's just put it on this comp. But it was um, Guy Atchison, a famous tattoo artist. It was yeah. his band. You and know? also metal, he did all the, he did a lot of big metal paintings too early on. Yeah, no, he's, he's, yeah, he's, you know, he really, and he's another one who I met. I met him at a Reagan youth show. It was him and his friend Kai and Kai ended up taking his life, but I would, I kept in touch with Guy after that. Like I would see him everywhere, shows, everything. And then I did that comp, the fungus among us comp. Um, But yeah, that was really cool. I just wanted to do a seven inch with Chicago bands. I was seeing all these bands all the time. And I was like, I want to do a Chicago record. So going back to Tom, you know, I was like, let's do a benefit record because the both of us really got interested in American Indian treaty rights. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there is the American Indian treaty rights committee in Chicago, which was a native American organization politicized. Like we, we were like, Hey, you know, you're into this. I'm into, let's do a fucking punk record and raise money for this or, you know, get money to this organization. So we basically were overly ambitious for the time. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we ended up like putting everything into it. We did this crazy calling of bands. Um, It's really interesting you brought that up. But yeah, it's an LP and a seven inch. (laughs) And we posted shit in Maximum Rock and Roll. And then it was like, we got flood of tapes. Like, I don't know. You know, it was a flood. So it was like bands like Mamido Seven from Germany, you know, uh, (laughs) Seven League Boots. I'm trying to think, like, you mentioned some of the bands. Sponge Tunnels on it, you know. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy record. It's all over the place, you know. Um, It is like Bazooka Joe's on it. Filth is on it. Filth is on a straight up hardcore punk and then like stuff that goes off a little bit. It's it's just like, you know, we put a lot on it and it was a, a massive job. Like it was a nightmare, actually, and not because of that process, but dealing with the pressing plant. They delivered the LPs and I'd say 90 percent of them were warped <laughs> and I was falling apart at an early yeah. age. I was so freaked out and just dealing with this nightmare of a situation, but it was, it was a good experience for sure. But um, yeah, my friend Tom and I worked on that and that was a cool, cool release. So. Well, it's, it's so like you're saying, it's all over the map, but it does reflect kind of like how cool punk was kind of at the late eighties, early nineties, I guess, you know, like the alternative boom would happen and things would kind of change. But like at that time where you have a universe where filth and mega city four, 
you know, can mm. all exist. And I guess, I guess Sean Forbes connects probably both those bands too, in a way, but like, you know, yeah. like the fact that all these things kind of coexist is, is kind of awesome. And I think that's, that's also on, on there's a fungus among us too. Like sonically that reflects that stuff we're talking about in Chicago, where only the strong sounds, nothing like gear who sound nothing like screeching weasel. And it's just, it's very like, like I don't know. That's my ideal version of punk. Yeah. Yeah. No, well that's, that's what it was. So it was everything under one roof. It wasn't so divided sonically in terms of just like you sound exactly like this kind of family of bands you know mm -hmm. it was like all over the place so well and daryl from the bow weevils when he was on the show talked about a moment where this kind of changes in chicago and it does kind of like and he couldn't really put his finger on why it happens but mm -hmm. it almost like everyone kind of like factions off or like that the scene does divide like is it because it gets too big do you think or like do you have any theories on why that happens or did you even see that happen yourself Oh, no, I saw it happening. I mean, you used to be able to see so many different kinds of bands together, right? Um, and it was real diverse in terms of sounds and stuff. But then you started to see it happen. I think maybe it got kind of big. I, I saw what I started to see is the straight edge scene in Chicago, or I'd say mostly the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. They started kind of doing their own thing. And they kind of started, you know, separating from everybody. And, you know, I know there was that whole Tony Club Blitz thing. And they they kind of were really selective about who they put on their shows. And it just kind of branched off, you know. Um, you know, because there were still there were still shows happening at Dreamers that were pretty diverse. It was like Toxic Reasons, Undead, White Zombie. You know, it was like, what? it was like. You know, and the undead didn't show up, unfortunately. But, you know, you would get that kind of bill, you know, yeah. it was all over the place. You're like, whoa, what's happening? Or, you know, I don't know, you know, but it, it seemed like, you know, one of the last times I saw Youth of Today, it was like Youth of Today, Uniform Choice and Fang, you know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you're familiar with those bands, they, you know, and one of the things I remember Fang said was like, Hey, we're so happy that you know you it's the uniform choice of straight edge because more bear for us. Like they were just like that was their attitude about it. It was really weird, but funny and weird. But yeah, things were really diverse. But I don't know what happened. Things started kind of, but you know, in the 90s, there were definitely shows that were super diverse, super diverse. I think it was a very tail end of the 80s that there were some branching out that happened, and branching out, I mean more like. Uh, isolating, you know, that, that would occur, but, you know, I think it happened even more so later on because the nineties, like you can have Grudos and Captain Jazz play together. Yeah. That wasn't out of the ordinary, you know, or, you know, shit, we would perform with drag performers like drag queens. We, we did shows with all sorts of people, you know? So, um, you know, we were okay with, with diversifying, but when it came together in a way where it was like a really killer show, you're like, oh my God, like that show is just nuts. You know, it's like, look those, his hero's gone, drop dead, like all on one bill or something. Yeah. It, it's kind of heavy, you know? Well, I think, and, and Tim from Rise Against talked about it when he came on the show, like when he, when he joins Rise Against and they're on fat records, how he mm -hmm. was kind of getting mocked when you go back to, you know hang out with his friends that were part of the more DIY scene at the time. Like, it feels like there is almost that rise of, of pro core 
bands and bands that are kind of going for it post, I guess, Green Day and Rancid and all that stuff happening. And then bands that are just like, no, we're, we're DIY hardcore bands and DIY punk bands or DIY bands. Hmm. So he would get, he'd get mocked for it. Yeah. He said when he, people be like, Hey, did fat Mike drop you off in his limo? Or when they got a van, he's like, Oh, did fat Mike buy you the van? <laughs> Didn't fat Mike do this and that for you? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, you know, you know, punk is very unforgiving and they're brutal <laughs> about that shit. Yeah, absolutely. You know that. <laughs> so it gets a little weird, right? It's like, don't you dare cross that line, you know? <laughs> but I think that's why it stays punk stays, right? Like there's no other scene that's able to retain this sort of like, well, there are, there are obviously other scenes, I should say, but like punk is just one of these places where it's, it's, it's always going to be pure because when it starts getting too big or starts doing something, it's kind of cut off and the core is able to stay intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it depends, you know, it does fall apart or it moves, it kind mm -hmm. of mutates, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. It mutates and goes over like key players move to a bigger city and, and continue doing stuff, you know, and, you know, maybe punk in that town really fizzles, you know, because, yeah. you know, majority of the people they're spectating, they're not like physically or mentally investing so much of themselves in it. They're kind of just watching as it happens. Mm -hmm. So you always have that, you know, kind of occurring, you know, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's a really fine line, right? It's like people are really uh, passionate about their punk and about, you know, whatever, DIY, whatever, you know, and it's like, you know, when people kind of start getting famous, it gets really sort of frowned upon, you know, it's like, oh, well, blah, 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 you know, and even if you're not, you know, like, I don't know, it's such a weird, you know, as I'm getting older, I view it sometimes and I'm like, okay, I get it, you know, but in the end, you know, it's like, I think about just people need to do what they want to do, you know, and it's like, in the end of the day, like, you know, I, I just think about like, you know, if, if you really want to go for it and write whatever kind of music you want, then you fucking do it, you know, and fuck mm. what everybody thinks, you know, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you have to answer to yourself. And if you're, you're doing things just to please other people, which punk does a lot of that, you know, it's, it's like people, you know, are afraid to cross that line and try something different because they're going to be super criticized for doing it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. It's also interesting when you look at Chicago and look at like, you know, the, the most popular bands that are identified as being punk bands in the mainstream, how, you know, like fallout boy, rise against and alkaline trio all can be traced back to this sort of scene we're talking about this diy scene like it seems like you know it will constantly be producing the next wave of bands in some mm -hmm. way that will you know go on to but then ultimately you need these bands to be the bands on saturday Night live that are inspiring the next wave of kids to to get into it well you see that's the thing it's interesting because right like when i was a kid i saw the fear footage right it's mm -hmm. like if that would have never happened, if I wouldn't never seen the Ramones, if I wouldn't have, you know, been exposed to the little bits of punk here and there in my, my adolescence or whatever, would I have found that scene, you know, or would it have taken me a lot longer? Um, even when I was in a punk, there were so many bands I didn't know. And if it wasn't for somebody handing me that 10th generation dubbed cassette of, you know, all these international punk bands or hardcore bands, would I have known about that? You know, it's yeah. like, it, it's almost like, 
you know, and you just have to rely on people being nice enough to share shit with you to learn about it. That's what yeah. it was like. Now it's, it's so different. Like you can punch in one band name and it'll lead you to other stuff. You know, you can do a discog search on one band and then it shows you all these other records that are sort of in that realm you know to explore so you know that's why you get really weird stuff like when i was living in santa Ana, there's this group of kids who showed up they didn't know who i was they showed up to my apartment because i was booking shows at the mexican cultural center in santa Ana, and they're like hey we we heard we got to bring you our tape i was like oh cool and one kid has like gizm on his back and another kid has vaudaus Vados. And I was like, how the fuck do you know Vados? You know, this early 2000s still. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I found it on the internet. I was like, come in here. And I pulled out the Vados 12 inch. I'm like, this is the band. Do you know how long it took me to get this record? It was like insane. It was like, and here's the Gizm album. Like these kids were just looking at me like, who the hell is this dude? You know, but it was just so mind boggling for me at the time. Cause I, I, I did just, it wasn't making sense to me. I'm like, mm. house? that's like so obscure. You, know? you don't need that. Like you don't need to be like, you're saying it's so hard to get that information when you're first getting into it and you're just picking up dribs and drabs. And then you're trying to make sense of it when you get to the show, mm-hmm. you don't need to do any of that social social work in that sort of term anymore. Like you can just do it all on the computer. You don't need that old punk to hand you down something. You don't need it anymore. I mean, it's nice to get it because you can't possibly know everything, right? But Mm -hmm. I remember when that band, when C. Northern came onto the scene, I gave the band a gift. It was the Peace War compilation. You know, I was like, listen to this and learn this is a great compilation you know they were like and they shared it you know they passed it around between the band members so they you know they were into it they were into it you know um but that you know that was a nice sampling of just international hardcore punk you know from the time so and that's i think I'm, i'm really lucky to have grown up where i grew up for a lot of reasons obviously but like i think in terms of just the music stuff but like growing up in toronto with you know simon harvey doing ugly pop people like amants you know like people that were fans of international hardcore so you know and people like yourself championing this stuff too and like you know talking about los viadros and uh, probably worst pronunciation ever there but like um but like talking about these bands from argentina yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) i'm terrible with english too my pronunciation so i suck on every language but hearing like about this stuff you telling me about this stuff like i was really lucky because i knew that punk was the thing that makes punk awesome is the fact that it is an international genre like you're talking about on the on the peace comp you like you see that this thing is spread all over the world and that you don't need anyone you just need kids changing tapes right and i mean i think you know there was a time prior to the internet that there was like a core of us that were trading records and we were obsessed with the most obscure and international so that would have been like cats and thrash head in la right it would have been elix von havoc it would have been jack control you know it's like me there are a few of us that were like trading records and going what is the most obscure fucking hardcore record from your town 
they have a seven inch, get it for me. I'm going to give you the violent tumor EP. Like it was just like that, you know, it was like, I'll find the most obscure fucking hardcore thing I can. And, you know, I, I had like a stack of those and I would just send them to these guys in exchange for the most obscure they had. Mm -hmm. And that's what we would do. You know, it was like, you know, yeah, that's what we were doing. That, and that's <laughs> the only way you'd find out about it too, right? And we were obsessed. We were obsessed. We wanted more and more. It was like, how far, how you know, deep can you dig into this? And and we were obsessed with it. We loved it, you know. I wanted to ask you some record collecting stories. And I heard a story about one time you were in like uh, a restaurant. You walked into some restaurant and saw a box of records in the back of the restaurant is that a true story and it turned out to it's be a like true story let me tell it to you <laughs> it's a cafe in chicago um there was a friend who was in from out of town um and he showed up at my apartment with two lps it was two lps he showed up with grito suburbano from brazil compilation <laughs> yeah and I want to say the second LP was the Wretched album. And I was like, where did you get that? And he goes, I don't know. It was some weird cafe like up north. And I was like, I know what you're talking about. So he left town. And the next day I went to the cafe. They didn't have any LPs, no other LPs. It was like, and... I walk in and there's a stack of seven inches that just got put out. They were all priced from a dollar. And the most expensive one was $4. It was Decords and Cows and Beer. And um, the rest were like, you know, negative approach, uh, process of elimination, the mentally ill seven inch. Like it was just, I, I literally moved the DK singles out of my way and grabbed the rest of the singles. It was probably about like 20 something, seven inches. It was both AOF articles of faith, seven inches. And I already had some of them. These were repeats, but I literally just grabbed the whole stack, walked it to the counter and spent, I think about 40 something dollars. And the woman said, are you a collector? I was like, I'm just a freak for this stuff. And I, and I, you know, bought everything that was there. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so kind of, yeah, it's a true story. <laughs> was there a violent tumor in there too, or no? You know what? The thing is that I wouldn't have bought it because I already had like a pile of violent tumor EPs. So <laughs> I, I remember going to a record store up north at the time. It was called Pravda. Mm -hmm. um, they were a store who... Did used they do to a label? Be, uh, yes, yes. Pravda yeah. Records, yeah. and they used to be in the Northwest. And I believe they released the Mr. Epp in the calculations EP. Yeah. And, they might have, and something else too, something like kind of, I'm just blanking on it, but yeah, anyway, go in. Sorry. I didn't mean, to yeah, go well, they, they had a shop and I remember going in there and they had a pile for a quarter each of the violent tumor EPs with, with covers and the crippled youth seven inch, but I already had like a pile of the violence. So I didn't buy them because I was like, <laughs> why am I going to buy more of that? And I think I might've grabbed the crippled youth, like one of them, but you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, I'm going to grab everything. You know, who thought? Yeah. I don't, we didn't think like that, but. Yeah. Well, especially at that time, like it, it really felt like that record was, I guess it's you who's kind of discovering and sending out to people, but like that record seemed like something people really got hip to in like mid 2000s, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. The violent tumor. Well, you know, the funny thing is there's all this 
folklore around the violent tumor the band right like you know they played one show ever well let me tell you they played a basement party i think that's what they played they never played a legit show because i would have been there because i went everything (laughs) but let me again i just tell you how i got my violent tumor the first one yeah um I'm at a show at the Cabaret Metro with my friends and I'll be brief about it. Oh, no, I'm go at on. Show, friends, we're hanging out and we're all kids from this neighborhood, right? Something falls from the balcony, literally hits me in the head and slides down my face, down to my feet. And I was like, what the fuck? And I grab it and I see it's a record. I hand it to my friend and I said, go, man, get the fuck out of here. He goes, all right, man. And he leaves. Because I know somebody's going to show up. <laughs> I was like, I don't want you here. Take it, you know. <laughs> and this big black dude in a long trench coat, like army coat, comes and he goes, hey, where's that record? I said, what record? <laughs> it was the one that hit you in the fucking face or something like that. And I'm like, I didn't know what it was, man. I gave it to some dude and he walked away. He goes, you shouldn't have done that, man. Here. Take another one. He goes, listen to it. So <laughs> I ended up with two copies of the violent tumor. <laughs> That's wild. Is and that how they distributed yeah. the record? They have to have a guy throwing them in people's faces. <laughs> you know, they were so obscure. They never played shows, you know. Um, but I love that EP. It's so weird. It's so crazy yeah. for the time. You know, it's just like who is this band? But, you know, they became kind of legendary, but, you know, it just kind of happened in a weird way because they weren't a band that played, you know? Was Naked Hippie kind of part of the scene more? Naked Hippie were way out somewhere. So I don't even remember ever seeing Naked Hippie. That's one band that I may have seen them, but they were out. I want to say, was it Carbondale or something? I mean, they were hours away from here. I don't remember exactly where they were from. To be yeah, honest. I've never seen them on any flyers, so that's why I was wondering if they played too much. Yeah. Um, this has been incredible, Martine, as I knew it would be. And I'm not going to keep you too much longer because I know you got to get up and, and do stuff tomorrow. But, you, you know. You got me pumped. You can keep going for a while. <laughs> okay, well, then in that case, let me know when you're ready to tap out. Um, How did uh, Crudos first kind of come together? Because I remember talking to you one time and you mentioned – like one of the first times I met you, you mentioned how there was like almost like a separate South side of Chicago punk scene that was kind of forming. And that was like around that time. I think, you know, the, the, the thing is that it was the time that, you know, I, I saw so much happening and changing with, with punk. Like it's like people were doing all this kind of fusion stuff. Like there was one band that was like doing funk punk and, you know, it was cool for a while, but it was just like, it just felt like bands were splintering off and doing stuff that kind of just didn't feel super punk anymore. And I was still obsessed with punk, you know? Um, and when I say punk, I mean like a certain sound, like I wanted fast and loud, you mm-hmm. know? Um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, they were all punks, you know, but it was just like what they were doing sonically wasn't appealing to me, you know, at the time. Um So, you know, I already, you know, had, you know, I I tried to, I tried out for a band. This is pre-Crudos. It was members of Screeching Weasel. They were like, Martin, we want to do a hardcore band and you want to try out for vocals. I said, yeah. So I went out there. I tried it. 
and I sucked. And they were like, uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to work. They're trying to be nice. Cause I knew that, <laughs> but it's like, it sucked. And it's because I was still really timid. Like I was a really extremely kind of quiet, timid person. So I didn't find my voice yet. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, it is funny because they've said to me, they're like, fuck, man, when we saw Cruzos afterwards, we were like, what the hell? That's what we wanted. <laughs> it was like, it just wasn't there yet. It, I wasn't ready, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I, you know, I came to a point that I, I wanted to do a band and I, I had this idea of wanting to do a band and sing in Spanish. And there was, there were these guys that I heard about from my younger brother. Some of them, I think one or two of them went to his school or one of them did. And he had met them and he told me, Hey, there's these guys, they're, they're kind of a punk band. And I was like, I want to check them out. And they were fucked the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, I ended up meeting some of them and said, Hey, I have this band idea. Do you guys want to try it out with me? And that's kind of how it happened. And it started and they were like, sure. And I, I told him, I was like, I want to sing in Spanish and blah, 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 and sing about all this stuff. I'm like, cool, let's try it. And that was kind of the beginnings of, of Cruz, you know? So who would you play with early on? Because you're on the Octung Chicago Spy compilation, which, you know, was once again all over the map. Um, like, who would you who would you guys kind of fit in the most with, do you think, back in the early days? Fit in the most? Well, we just, you know, we played a lot of different shows. So... I mean, we played with like Born Against early on, Econochrist, mm. Spitboy, of course. Um, but then we would play with local bands. Like we would play with Sludworth. We would play with, um, you know, I'm trying to think like one of the Doug Ward bands. Um, we would go, you know, to play out in the suburb, which was always really interesting. Because <laughs> we would roll in such a different way. Like people were like, what is this like what what are they who are like people were you know i mean people were confused by us and i i think that was sort of the beauty of crudos i remember playing i want to say it was either one of the ohio frests or indiana i want to say it was ohio and we were just hanging out by like a van our van our friends gave us a or, you know lent us a van for that show and we, you know Jose, we're standing out there, Jose shirtless smoking with a boombox blasting wretched. And people are like, what? Like, this is like 90s, like emos, just massive. It's, you know, oozing out of everyone's pores. Yeah. We're like fucking wretched impact. Like we were obsessed with Italian hardcore and like, you know, in that, you know, or Mexican or whatever. We mm -hmm. were just with international hardcore and people were kind of like would look at us in this really weird way they they didn't you know it was it was interesting <laughs> it's, it's well it's funny you say that about the the emo culture height being that time because like it, yeah it just wasn't it was like hardcore you know obviously and connect to it but it wasn't hardcore punk anymore like it had gotten so removed from kind of the punk thing um and i remember going to some of these fests too and like you know just how many bands being so bored and then crudos would play or 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 drop dead would play or mk ultra would play or like some band that was like oh this is what i've been looking for and now there's obviously something for everyone but at that time it was it was rare to find fast bands it was it was rare you could kind of you could identify who they were right you'd be like okay there's capitalist casualties on yes. the west side you know west coast there was like drop dead there were these certain bands and we were all aware of them you know the thing is that i don't want to you know i i don't necessarily want to 
shit on the emo scene because there were a lot of really great people but you know musically it was the bands that kind of pushed it you know it was the ones who kind of got I don't know I remember being at a fest and I picked up I was buying records obsessively and always buying shit and some guy had his distro and I said what is this record like who is this he goes it's so pretty and I just put the record right back down I was like I'm not in a point in my life where I want fucking pretty. Okay. <laughs> it was, it sounds weird, you know, but I was just like, no, like, no, yeah. like you can't, I don't want, I don't want to buy pretty records. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I put it down, but you know, when you saw bands like heroin or Antioch arrow, these bands, they were fast, you know, or Jenny Piccolo it was like fast and aggressive and, you know, it, it just was a different thing, you know, and then there were the bands that played really mellow chill. And I was like, ah, like I, I, you know, I would check it out, but I wasn't a huge fan of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but we knew who the fast bands were. We were always really stoked to play with them. <laughs> it's, it's, I find it also amazing how geographically music is taken up differently in punk and hardcore, like Tony Molina's, uh, you know, Tony Molina. Uh, he's been on a, you know, the homie. He's been on the show a bunch, and he always laments the fact that power violence on the East Coast is kind of nerdy music, whereas on the West Coast, it's like, it's like the legit it's street life. hardcore. Yeah, it's life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No power violence on the West Coast is like so embedded in the part of the fabric of West Coast hardcore and punk. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you go to LA and power violence is king. You know, mm-hmm. it's like yeah, absolutely so. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I mean, yeah, it's just the way it is. It, it definitely, there were certain areas where you got a little more something than something else. Right. So yep. yeah. West coast, definitely uh, power violence was huge. You know, it, it feels like it's changing now. Like you're saying earlier, like with these kids that are showing up, knowing the most obscure bands right out of the gate, like the geographical differences have changed now because like, you're not limited to your geographical space for your scene anymore. Like you're, it's more like just based on people that are are in the same mindset as you, it seems like younger people that come on the show. I find that really with. Well, you know, it's, it's all about access, right? So, um, you know, if all of a sudden everything's available to you, you really, you know, you're, you're lucky because you can be exposed to so much. So, mm. you know, I think I've, benefited as well from the sort of being able to, you know, hear some obscure Icelandic punk bands that I wasn't able to get their records when I was younger, you know? Um, So, I mean, there's a beauty in that, but yeah, it's a little weird sometimes, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, you know, we, I, you also saw how somebody would try to flash, like I'm fucking cool. Like I made a homemade fix shirt. And it's, you know, it's 1998 and so many you don't know who the fix is, but I'm standing there going, I know who the fucking fix is, you know, <laughs> but it's like, you we, you know, it is just weird. You saw this kind of like, who's in a where, you know, the most obscure weirdest, you know, you, you got a little bit of that happening here and there. It's weird. <laughs> and now it feels like that game is kind of over because you can't impress anyone because anyone could be in the most obscure shit now. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. I, I'm glad it's like, I, I kind of hate that snobbery. It's a little weird. It's <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, of, uh, snobbery and nerdiness, uh, 
the Crudos uh, 12-inch, the first LP, there's a test press version, which only has like two songs per side or a song per side. Yeah, it was a misprint. It was a fuck up at the pressing plant. I guess what had happened, it was a pressing plant in New York and I sent the DAT. This is where you would just send a DAT. Mm -hmm. And there was a glitch in the DAT. So it only had the two songs. (laughs) So they were used to pressing dance 12 inches. So they thought, oh, but literally, it was like a 40-second song on a 12-inch record, one <laughs> side. I don't know if they thought it was some high art project or something, but it's like, no, that's a mistake. Like, there's a problem there. So I have this test pressing where it's like a 40-second song on one side and one or two on the other. Yep. And I was like, this, there's definitely something wrong here. I mean, I remember even pulling it out of the package and going, this doesn't look right. <laughs> you know? Like you just saw the cut grooves and it's like this thin little piece of the record that's been, you know, cut into it. And yeah, so we had to get that recut. We didn't realize there was a glitch in the, in the dat. Uh, I guess the other, you know, since we're talking record nerd shit now, the, uh, one of the nerdiest records of the nineties was that Charles Bronson metal sleeve record. Was that you guys, or was that you at Lingua Armada or is that the, the band doing that? No, that was that was me. Like I, I, I thought it would be, <laughs> you know, I liked making different covers and weird shit. And I think we probably talked about it. And I was like, let's do this metal cover or whatever. So yeah, so put it together. Yeah, silk screened a metal cover. Um, bought some like kind of felt sort of type of material to put on the inside to protect the vinyl. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we sold them for like five or six bucks or something like that, but then it became like super collectible later on. But, well, but it almost felt like the whole thing as a concept was a commentary on, you know, and now this has gone completely haywire, but the collectability of records, like out of the gate, like the fact that it had the labels pasted over. So in theory, you should never play it. Or the fact that they were all what, six, six, seven out of six, 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 I think out of 330. Oh, that's it. Sorry. (laughs) yeah yeah and you know it was interesting because there were a couple people i remember there's one kid at a show who's like no i don't want that version and he bought the regular version he was just kind of like trying to make a statement like i don't want any limited editions and it's like okay whatever (laughs) regrets that now (laughs) probably maybe not But it was it also designed to scratch the record? Because I remember Dave Somm telling me when he's like, when you get it, make sure you lift the corner when you pull the record out. Otherwise, the corner will scratch the LP. Was that a design thing or is that just like? No, no, I would never do that. I think it was just like I was used to just pulling it up and down. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Pulled it out in a weird way. Maybe that I, I never heard anybody say that it totally scratched the record, but I guess it probably did. You know, I remember Dave giving me that warning, I think at Columbus Fest. Uh, so that was, I've carried that warning with me to this day, too. That's hilarious. Uh, um, and I guess the other thing I really want to, to talk to you about is just sort of like that moment where everything is you know, obviously there's tons more I want to talk to you about, but I guess like you know, to, to wrap it up and not force you to have to stay here for the rest of your life. Um, that moment where there is that shift that kind of happens and there is sort of like the return of, of, of hardcore and, and punk, like, I guess, 
it's kind of like towards the tail end of Crudos, but definitely Limprist is there when it when like hardcore punk and the fast hardcore kind of returns. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there was just there were people who really decided that that's what they were into, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody just, you know, the bands that were existing or coming up at the time just kind of started being really active. Um I, I, you know, I, I think there was enough of it that you could actually put shows together that featured a lot of those bands, right? Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think it got big enough that there was like, there was a whole new wave of people who were into stuff and they're like, I like fast, aggressive music, you know? And, mm-hmm. and you know, then, you know, it became where I think it got to a point where it was like, that was all of it. So who wanted to, after a while, sit through five fast bands, you know, or six fast bands? It just got boring after a while. So it's like any band that kind of strayed from it a little bit or kind of mixed it up or did something a little more interesting made it a little more diverse and a little more interesting, you know? But yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, you saw a lot of that. I think people wanted to also, there's this internal thing to being like, you look at a flyer from 82, you're like, oh my God, this show is stacked, you know, or you would like see, you know, it's like necros, negative approach, minor threat, like all on one bill, holy shit, you know? And I think there was, you know, maybe a little bit of like, let's have shows that are like that. It's just like hardcore band after hardcore band, you know? Um <laughs> Which is, which is okay, you know, but after a while too, I mean, if, you know, whatever, having a little bit of diversity is not going to hurt anyone. It's actually awesome. So. Well, and it's also like, you go back now and you look at that Octun Chicago spy comp and you like go through like, you know, just what a, what a weird mishmash of, of Sonics and like all the different places those bands would, you know, influence people. And the fact that you've got Fred Armisen on there and Trenchmouth and you know yourself on there and and like it just you know smoking popes and capping jazz like it really is yeah you know, it's, it's most exciting when it's like that yeah no absolutely I think there was a lot of really cool stuff that was going on you know we had uh you know you had the kind of hardcore stuff but then you had these other bands that was crossing over with uh you know like scissor you know scissor girls and mm-hmm. uh you know, there who who else am I thinking? That's Azita's band. Sister, is it Scissor Girls? Um. Yes. Yes. I want to say it's a Scissor Girls. And there was like um, what's his name? Weasel's band, uh, the flying Lutenbachers. Like there were all these weird kind of <laughs> art math rock uh it was sort of part of that trend an extension of the trench mouse scene um there were other bands there was stuff happening so you know there was crossing over you know gorillas would play with all sorts of bands it was you're right i would say with limpress it definitely started getting more hardcore like there was more just like punk and hardcore bands and I think we intentionally, especially in recent years when we would play, we'd want to mix it up a bit. So, you know, we would play like we played with Big Frida, like in L.A. or, you know, we would play with More Mother, you know, from Philadelphia. Um, you know, we'd want to mix it up a bit because we didn't just want four other or three other hardcore bands playing with Limpress, you know. Well, I think, you know, one of the most legendary shows ever in Toronto is that first Limpress show in Toronto at Vaseline, you know, and just sort of like what an event that was and what an energy that show had. Man, Vaseline parties were amazing. I mean, 
what Will Monroe did for Toronto in, in just, you know, for punk, queer, art, anything is just amazing. Mm-hmm. So we we loved, loved doing anything Will wanted, we would go do. You know what I mean? So if Will invited us, and he invited us, I want to say at least three times to play Vaseline. We did at least three Vaseline parties, if I'm not mistaken. I remember the first one was at El Macombo, Elmo, right? Yep. Yeah, I remember that. And then this, I remember playing some big stage, some bigger Please. space. Lee's Palace, right? Was it Lee's Palace? The next time was Lee's Palace, maybe? Lee's Palace. We played an after set, I think, at some back of a skate shop or some shit. Drift. Okay, so you'll remember that. I don't remember that. But I mean, no, anytime, I mean, Will was amazing and the 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 Vaseline parties were unreal they're they're just they're always going to play a huge huge part in my sort of memory you know well it was awesome talking to bruce uh and him saying how like will basically manifested what he had fantasized about when he was making jds you know like he invented the queer punk scene in toronto that he had always dreamed of having in toronto yeah i could see that i mean will really brought all these different worlds together under one roof that normally may not cross Mm -hmm. paths so he was really good at that you know we would have these amazing hangouts like I would stay with Will every time I'd be out there and we would listen to old house records and we would go record shopping or I remember once I I bike rode with Will he took me on a bike ride at like 2 30 in the morning through Toronto and downtown and it was just empty you know it was like not barely any cars on the road we're just riding in the middle of the night just talking to each other as we're riding or we would go at like the middle of the night to the cruising park in toronto to see all these men walking around like zombies trying to suck each other off it was just crazy it was good i mean some amazing memories i i you know truly 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 that there's definitely a void there. What an amazing person. He did such great stuff. Um, his parties were a blast. I mean, that is ideal. Like Limpress, when we talk about Limpress, we're always like the most ideal Limpress show is just this coming together of people from all different worlds, just losing it, you know, just mm-hmm. going crazy and having a blast. And, you know, it's not just one genre. It's just like anything goes kind of thing, you know, so we we always love that well that was the thing about those parties you know like the fact that you'd have cherry curry there or you'd have you know yourself there or or jane county there or someone like you know like just all this sort of like history like bringing it all together from the runaways to limpress to to like this is all punk and this is and will's vision of it was that it all fit in and there'd be crazy visuals happening behind it and and it would be like a super fun party mm-hmm. and you know, like it was, it was, it was the best times. Those were, like you're saying, those were the best times in Toronto. Yeah, no, they were great. I mean, I, I think, you know, that just speaks to Will because Will was obsessed. Like he, he did his homework. He mm-hmm. knew, you know, he would, he would research it. He was interested. He was obsessive. He, he would 
he would do his homework. He would go into like these histories and try to find out as much as he could. Then, you know, when he had his party going, he's like, I mean, you would look, I have a bunch of his flyers and you're like, how the hell did you put this together? You know, <laughs> just stuff that you're like, what, you know? Um, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we were so used to just doing like the kind of the bands that we knew and people we knew in that era, but he was bringing people out of the woodwork to come out to do something like you mentioned Sherry Curry or, or, you know, you know, Wayne, you know, Wayne, Jane County, just whoever, you know, it's just like, what, like, how did, you know, how did you make that happen? <laughs> you know, but he did it. Well, because uh, at the time I was getting into like, you know, I, I once again, being a record nerd and, and just digging and stuff, I was getting super into Toronto New Wave stuff. And he was like literally the only person I could talk to that cared about this stuff because it was like, like you're saying, he was just like a deep head about anything that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, this has been super fascinating for me. And please know anytime, anytime you want to come back here. The door is always open. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I hope it's interesting. I'm like, I feel like we just had a, a nerd out that is going to bore most That's all people. I want. That's what <laughs> it doesn't. I don't care about most people. I care about these people. Like, you know, this is one of those things that like when I have other friends of mine who get like this or like are at a party and start nerding out, I'm like, look, shut the fuck up. Nobody else cares about it. No, <laughs> I'm like, you, you're, it's like, you can't talk to the world like you're talking to me because nobody cares. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing is like, this is the safe space where we, we can talk about test pressings of records and, and limited pressings of records. And, you know, we can be, I used to fetish. Oh, oh my gosh. This took me forever. Like I didn't want to buy it, you know, just online, but to find this in the wild took so long and then i was in chicago last weekend and didn't i find a second copy but you know it was after Can I tell you something funny about that that cover the purple because some are purple some are pink, pink. and they're yeah. and green i skipped the show to paint those because i was on a deadline and was so dedicated to releasing that record and i was determined and there was a show i didn't go to that i wish i would have and my younger sister and younger brother went to it but it was the rev tour it was judge and all that played that <laughs> night that i was working on. it was like gorilla biscuits judge i i was a bold i can't remember who else yeah. played but yeah that was the night of that show i was painting those <laughs> well i appreciate it I appreciate You're, you missing that show. You know show. what you didn't ask me that I've heard you ask a bunch of people and you didn't ask me. I was waiting for the boom and the Legion of Doom question. Well, you do, do you, well, because I figure Chicago, maybe you didn't have stories, but do you have boom and the Legion of Doom stories? I saw boom and the Legion of Doom. I've heard you always ask people that and that people don't know what you're talking about or never seen them, but I've seen boom and the Legion of Doom. <laughs> Where did you see them? In Chicago? They, yes, they played a really crazy venue called the warehouse that was on the west side of chicago and i just remembered it was this you know the warehouse was kind of out there and the shows there this is like a really kind of gritty gritty scene right this is the place where gg allen shit like just you know projectile shot on a ton of skinheads and they want to kill him there it was like all this crazy stuff happened there but I went to a show and it was Boom and the Legion of Doom. And I would be 
generous if I said there were 20 people there. <laughs> but, you know, I was one of the 20, which I don't even think there were 20 people. But I remember Boom playing and they showed up and they were just like, I don't know, they just seemed so off, but they were throwing animal limbs and body parts around this room. And I guess they had made a stop at a slaughterhouse and brought pieces of animal. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just throwing it around. And I was like, huh, (laughs) I mean, I was just like, okay, you know, and oh man, yeah. I forget that Chicago does have that kind of like low key scumpunk scene with like bloody mess and the scabs and that kind of whole world, right? Well, bloody mess, they were from, I want to say Michigan. Oh, so Michigan. Oh, sorry. Mess over that way. Yeah. But we had a scene of that. There was a place called Hell House here in Chicago. And it was a venue that was on 666 Milwaukee. And it really wasn't 666, but they changed the address so it would be 666. It might have been like 663 or something like that. I can't remember. But that was a fucking pretty bonker scene. It was like this building and each floor had like bikers one was it was like a squat almost but there were a couple shows that happened the war zone show happened there um there were one of the war zone shows happened there i mean you know i went and saw a local show there too but it was it was that was hell house it was super super sketch what about algebra suicide did they ever cross over and play shows oh well i saw them there was a big w uh zrd uh benefit show it was like all these Chicago bands. So I saw Algebra Suicide with the effigies and, oh, it was a fucking ton of Chicago bands. I can't remember everybody that played, but yeah, they definitely played one of those. Oh, that's awesome. See, this here I go. I, I let you go and then I'm pulling you back in. Uh, thank You're you. Fine. Thank you for this. <laughs> You're fine. No worries. No worries. You you got me. You caught my attention. I, I'm... Now, you know, I'm going to have a tough time going to bed because I'm thinking about stuff. (laughs) Well, someone's a glutton for punishment and said, let's record again. So we're back already for this part two. You're going to edit the boring parts out, right? Well, there's no, I'm going to edit. So this seamlessly flows from one part to another, but there's no boring parts here. Believe me, like this is, this is the bread and butter of this show. Like. I think that's okay. the, I think that's the thing that I find, you know, I, I, that keeps me doing this thing is finding it like how interconnected everything is. And you are such a, a like a, a zeitgeist center point for so many different scenes kind of converging. And, you know, obviously, you know, also doing your own stuff musically helps too. But I think like, it's just amazing how many different worlds you're kind of involved with. And you're just like someone who just loves punk in in mm-hmm. most of its manifestations yeah yeah absolutely yeah for sure <laughs> so did you meet bruce LeBruce at all when he was doing stuff with screeching weasel you know i did i met him at the cabaret metro um there was some show i can't remember what it was but ben and those guys were there and they introduced me to bruce um Yeah, because, you know, they did that happy, horny, gay, sassy single. Mm -hmm. And so one of the alternate covers is a photo I took where Ben has like a a penis, like squirt gun. I took the photo of that. Um, 
But then he did that. There was the one cover of the one single with Bruce LaBruce pretending he's giving Ben a blowjob, you know, whatever. So, yeah, yeah, I did meet Bruce then. He wouldn't remember. Like when I met some people way back, I was, a you know, a quote unquote, just some dude who was around. You know, I wasn't a singer of any band. Yeah. I wasn't anyone, you know, that anybody's going to remember based on just, you know, scene cred or whatever you know so but yeah i did meet bruce way back then and then i got to hang out with him uh one of the trips back to toronto and it was really nice uh to just kind of walk around and talk and it was, it was cool yeah i was For gonna sure. say because i'm sure he well i'm sure he was at that first limpress or definitely some of those limpress vaselines yeah i i want to say that last one that we did was after will was gone like and we did that that fundraiser mm -hmm. i know bruce was around because we hung out like that weekend so that was cool that it's, was definitely cool it's interesting when you go through the jd's fanzine like when he would do the top 10 of punk stuff just like the stuff that they were into like really red like how did they get really red records like there's just so much stuff that i'm fascinated by like like the way the diaspora of punk kind of happens and certain records showing up in different cities and being picked up on by groups of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you is exactly about the JD zine. Um, but I've seen that in other zines. I'm like, who, like, yeah. how did they, yeah. Who got into that? Who got them into that? You know, just like weird stuff like that. You know, what was the first international record you, you became aware of like outside of sort of like the American punk stuff and then British stuff, I guess, too. This is including British stuff? Or no, no, like, not including the British stuff and maybe even non-Canadian stuff, but like stuff that where you like uh, knew, like wh when did you become aware of the fact that this was like a global thing? That's a good one. I, I don't know. I, you know, that's a really good question. I, I wouldn't remember exactly like what was that first record I grabbed that was like completely, in, you know, just from another place. I mean, I would have to say it would be like Peace Comp or it would be Welcome to 1984 or yeah, those are the two big comps. I remember having some old tape comps that had like bands from all over. I mean, you know, BCT was a huge deal in terms of distributing like tapes from Spain or Italy. I, you know, I want to say somebody even handed me at one point a VHS that was stretched out to the maximum recording and, with, and just chock full of videos of bands from everywhere. Like, so I had these videos I would watch, um, but I don't know what would be the first record. Like I didn't have a lot of money for records when I was really young. So I would say it was probably some tape or something that somebody handed me that had like a slew of bands on it. I really, you know, the, the Italian stuff really resonated with me. I was pretty obsessed with with Italian and then later of course Japanese Brazilian like stuff that was coming from anywhere like I was I was obsessed with it also I guess like the Italian bands toured America you know and, and a little bit up towards so, Canada too yeah so I saw Indigesti um yeah. and I got their single there was a tour single they had on that uh tour that Steve, Steve or Stiv from um, what's the zine? Uh, 
Why am I drawing a blank on that zine? It's an amazing Italian TVOR. Oh, yeah, TVOR zine. He was selling, he had his arm, he had zines running up one arm, (laughs) and the indigestive tour single. I guess the Metro wanted a cut from the bands if they sold merch at the Metro, and they were like, fuck that. So he was outside on the street with zines and that seven inch. And me and my friends were about to leave, and we're like, Hey man, what are you selling? You know, and he's like, Oh, hey, I'm from Italy and my name's Steve and I'm selling stuff for Indigesti. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know, I was like, I'll buy that single. And it was like $2 or something. And I bought the, the tour seven inch. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, that was that show. I want to say that was 87, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking I had some tapes or something before that. So I can't tell you exactly what was the first international thing I heard, you know? Well, yeah, BCT is doing their stuff early on. Like you're saying, 84, welcome 1984 comp. And then there's that raw power BCT tape and stuff. It felt yeah. like that stuff was was a little bit more. And I guess uh, Paul from the Zero Boys records records for raw power, too, at some point. Right. Well, you know, that's that's the thing is like Cheetah Chrome and the motherfuckers yeah. were supposed to play. So there was I saw BGK, MDC and Cheetah Chrome were supposed to play. I have the flyer still. Cheetah Chrome didn't show up, so they didn't play. <laughs> but then I see that they recorded in Indiana. I'm like, what do you mean? Why did maybe they were caught up in recording and just. Mm blew the show off or something but i mean i love that footage of them at the farm in san francisco there's a video that you're just like oh man like this band you know and you know i i should have seen them but they didn't show up bgk were great (laughs) (laughs) i guess also at a time where if you get bum directions you're kind of screwed if you can't find the show right like (laughs) Well, yeah, I think they probably were held up recording or I don't I don't know what happened, but they didn't yeah. show up, which was a bummer. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm trying to go. There were like a lot of bands that were going to work. I remember Porno Patrol came, but they weren't Porno Patrol. So they changed their name to No Allegiance. Oh, but yeah. they did. They did jump back which was a porno patrol song and i remember they did that but you know at that time too i would see all sorts of shows i mean it wasn't just the hardcore punk shows i went to everything like say i saw like uh i don't know red lorry yellow lorry uh gene loves jezebel i would go to anything you know um executive slacks like weird alternative like but the beauty of that like i saw jesus and mary chain on their first tour you know it's not like anything you know that was different you know because it was it was different it was uh, it wasn't mainstream it was offbeat it was weird i was like i'm i'm here to check all of it out you know so i would go to any show imaginable you know I know this is like definitely way out there, but would like White House play? Because Peter Sotos is from Chicago, right? Yeah, I never saw White House. I, you know, they were such an edgy band that, you know, they weren't, I don't recall them seeing any flyers for them playing or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know where they would play, but there was always a really kind of bizarre noise industrial scene happening in Chicago. I mean, I I think about like, there was a band called Intrinsic Action that Mark Solotroff was involved with and he worked at Vinyl. Uh, Fetish is it? Vintage Vinyl. vinyl. Oh, no, Vintage Vinyl. vinyl. 
records and you know people are like oh he was so mean I was like he was so nice to me you know <laughs> he was really nice to me and I still you know see him around town and we chat a little bit he's really nice um you know I think I had more of the other guy from that store was kind of a dick but you know it was like well, that's Peter Soto's right I think from vintage vinyl I don't think so. Someone wrote me in and told me because I always thought he worked at Wax Tracks, but someone wrote in and said no, he worked at this other store. And I thought it was that, but I gotta. Huh? I, it's interesting. I don't know. I I don't know. Now that you bring that up, I wonder. I mean, but let me tell you, Wax Tracks people. Some of those people, they were like, they were. Oh man, they had. They were these. I'm going to just do fag talk for you. They were these queens with the most insane attitude. I mean, they were so bitchy. They were just like, oh, what do you want? You know, they would just be like, you would go to the counter and I'd be afraid to ask for something because I was like, these queens are so mean. They're like brutal, you know, it's like, but they were just so, you know, we were like young punk kids and they were just like, oh my God, you're just like seven years too late. That's what they just like, <laughs> it felt like they just oozed that kind of energy out there. You know, it was like, I never wanted to ask for shit. I was always scared to go to the counter. Um, they were just, they were something else, but I miss it. I miss it so much. Like I love Wax Rex. Wax Rex is one of the best stores ever. It was great. You know, that whole culture is kind of gone. Like, like, we, you know, like where you could be a mean person because you had the access to information that people were going to be put up with you being mean. It's not gone. Time. What's his name in Toronto still has a shop. She's a mean person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Brian, but Brian could be a mean queen. He's 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 been mean, you know. <laughs> I think I, I agree. I think, but I think Brian's even mellowed a little bit, you know, compared really? to really. Yeah, so that that's not gone. There's people yeah. like that still for sure. <laughs> he's gonna hear this at some point and be like, "What an asshole!" <laughs> I, I think it's. I think it's also though, like the thing that. I find about that, like, obviously no one likes gatekeeper culture and, you know, we live in an era where we're past that, but that made you want to be better. You know, like I wanted to impress Brian Taylor when I started playing music because he's dismissed me my whole life. So I wanted to be in a band that was like, all right, well, I'll be in that band, you know, or like, you know, you want to be eventually like, okay, well, fine. I'll build my own scene. If you don't like it, fine. I'll build like you, that energy was something that spurred on creativity, I think. It, it could have depending right it depends like I think when you're really young and you're trying like so where I found like it was a good thing for me to encounter people who were really just nice you know mm -hmm. because the scene didn't seem very nice like people were like really fuck you a lot of times right mm -hmm. um or who are you or like like you had to pass some fucking initiation or some shit it was always weird but it was people who were really nice that made me want to go back and that's just me maybe somebody else would think differently but like, I think of Patty Pizzotti, like Jeff Pizzotti's sister from Naked Ray Gun. She was so sweet. We would go to shows. She would talk to us at the door. She'd be like, hey, you guys. Like, she would take our money. It was it was really nice. She was really nice. She was involved with um, with the old Chicago Last Rights fanzine, you know? Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, so she was super cool. There were other people who were just really friendly, really nice. And it made me feel like, oh, wait, you know what? You don't have to be an asshole to be in this, you know, and that was kind of really cool. And I think important for that to happen because I never wanted to be that person. I didn't want to be an asshole with young punk kids or kids who were coming. Like I've had kids say really embarrassing shit to me. And you know what? It's just like, let's let it roll off. I don't embarrass them any further. I don't. I just like I had a kid in L.A. come up to me some years back. He's like, oh, you're from Chicago. Oh, cool. Like Los Cruz. But I was like, yeah, man, I'm really good friends with Martin. And I just see all these people in L.A. kind of like, oh, like, oh, my God. Like people were like, holy shit. And I was just like, oh, really? Oh, cool. You know, and they're like, what's your name? And I was like, my name is Martin. And he was just like, oh, like it was one of those moments. And I'm like, you know what? I don't need to make this kid feel worse than what he probably does right at this moment, you know, where somebody would jump on that and just be like, get out of here, you know, or whatever. And I I didn't need to be that person. So I remember a moment, not quite that severe, but a similar moment when Crudos was playing Toronto where Jesse, the drummer from career suicide and the lead singer of the band scare tactic went up to you and decided to start talking to you about Zach De La Roca wearing the Crudo shirt in the Rage video. And we're all like, what the hell are you doing? But you were completely chill about it. But we were mortified. <laughs> we were like, shut, dude, what the fuck? Shut it down. Shut it down. I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't trip. I don't know. You know, I don't know. If you've ever felt awkward in your life, then you can be sympathetic. And I think yeah. we've all been through that. Every single human being. It's like, so I, you know, I don't want, unless somebody's really, if they're being jerks, like or just being total assholes, then I'll let somebody have it. But if you're just being sincere and like, you know, you're kind of trying to impress somebody. I'm not going to make you feel worse than what you probably already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And also I've, I've realized, you know, once again, through doing this show that the punishers are the people that make music history. Like it's, it's the kids that go up to the bands and ask all the questions and are doing the fanzines and are, you know, taking the photos that wind up being in the bands and, and doing this stuff. Because like you're saying, most of these people are just inactive you know, participants just watching it all go by, you know, but the, there are a few people that get actually involved. Right. Yeah, no, no. I mean, you have to appreciate those people who who nerd out or who ask like a million questions. They have details. They know stuff, you know. I mean, there's people who will remind me of stuff that I said or did. And I'm like, what? I don't I don't remember that. You know what I mean? It's like and I got a pretty good memory. But still, there's a lot of stuff that gets out there and you're like, I don't even remember any of that, you know, and people put it down. They remember, you know, so. Well, like there's, like we're saying, there's fanzines. There's these fanzines that have been documented every move. I mean, they're great, right? They're, they're kind of a a document of, of things, you know, and there's some people who are horrified for it because they, you know, they said some really crazy shit and it's, it's in this fanzine. And they're probably hoping that it never gets reprinted or people, you know, they're embarrassed. Like I've met old punks who were really embarrassed by certain things they said. Um, I had one person, I'm not going to name who they are, their band, but they were really embarrassed by an interview they had done back in 82 or something. Cause they said some stuff that was like homophobic. I don't know if they said faggot this or that. And he was like, 
I, I just, I can't even like, I don't even want to give you this. I'm like, look, I'm not tripping. I mean, are you still like that? No, right? No? Cool. You grew up. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. You know, it's like, now if you were still like that, I'd be like, man, what a mess. You know, it's like, but you know, people, I think some people are really, you know, they get really, get, get really down on themselves about something they said a long time ago. I mean, when I was a little kid, I said all sorts of crazy shit. I mean, I ran around in the streets, you know, it's like, you're going to say and do crazy stuff. Now, if you're going to behave that way in your 40s, 50s, whatever, then you got a fucking problem. But if you've grown, you know, and you've moved on and you've learned and you're, you're a completely opposite person to that, good for you. That's great. You know, mm. it's, it's like people want to, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so weird. And I think, you know, we're living in such a weird culture where people want to condemn people like forever for something they did. It's like, I, I, you know, I've been a teacher for so long. It's like, if I held on to that belief system with every kid that ever said a messed up thing, wow, we, we'd be, I mean, would we be living in total fucking sent to prison kind of condemnation culture? I'm not into that at all. I believe people will grow and change. So, you know, I don't know why I just went there, but that's just, you know, I teach. So I, I, I have to kind of say that, you know. Do you think teaching changed the way you approach dealing with these kids that are coming up to you at shows and, and talking to you? Like, do you think you have like a little bit more empathy because you, you do have to, you do see what kids are like? surrounded by their peers in, in these situations that aren't necessarily sympathetic, like a punk show? I, I, I would say, yeah, it has to. I mean, everything you do, I think, impacts the way you inevitably are as a person, right? And mm. some stuff can be really positive and stuff, stuff can be a little, like, not so great. But I, I do. I think it, it's sort of, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to. Like, if you're going to create a culture in your classroom where you want kids to feel like they're okay in that classroom or they're safe in that classroom or whatever. It's like, you have to, I mean, you have to also be open that some kids gonna, you know, say something really missing. Like I had a student, this kind of weird story I'm going to share with you, but I had a student who had to write me an apology letter. And this is a student who, you know, she basically called me a retarded ass hoe. <laughs> okay, this is a student. And it was harsh, you know, it was like, and I was like, okay, you know, I mean, what do you do? It's like, mm -hmm. kids are going to say some foul stuff to you, you know? But, you know, she ended up and I have the apology letter and it was fine. You know, it's like, I'm not going to hang onto that. You know what I mean? It's like, she clearly didn't mean it in this really brutal, like, just harsh way but you know you're working with kids you're working with teenagers and they're going through shit they're bringing shit from home you know or, or whatever's going on in their lives and it's going to manifest itself so you you know you kind of prepare yourself to hear anything and everything you know and you're going to get it you're going to get it if you work in that world you're gonna get it if you go into teaching and you think it's going to be fucking cute you're crazy get out of it <laughs> <laughs> well i think that's the thing is like you know teachers and parents are the only people that understand how complicated kids are you know because they're they're the only people that see all these different sides of them other than just the cute or other than just the the bratty sides they see all the multifaceted sides of this thing 
Yeah, I just think people forget, you know, you move on from being in an environment where you get everything, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you start selecting your friends as you're growing up, and everybody's really uh, curated to the way you want them to be or who you want near you. And then you kind of lose sight that, you know, there's a lot of other people out there. And even though you may not have allowed them into your circle, you know, they still exist, they're out there. And (laughs) crazy stuff happens (laughs) like for the longest time you were the only person that people wanted to hear talk at shows you know like it would be like oh fuck bands talk so much and everyone would be like except martine like that would be the thing the caveat people would be like i like when martine talks who are some of your favorite like on stage speakers i guess like i don't want to say banters because that diminishes it but like who do you think are some of the people that fill the space between the songs the best growing up or you know it wasn't bands. It wasn't punk bands that I could think of. I mean, I've heard people speak, um, you know, that, you know, it was not music related, but it really moved me, you know, and I was like, oh, like, I, I don't know, you know, I feel lucky. I feel lucky that people were willing to hear me out, you know, um, you know, because yeah, I, I I don't know. That's a really tough one. I'm trying to think of other bands that have spoken. See, but then in the 80s, a lot of people didn't talk too much, you know. Um, you would hear, like I saw a video, I, it was a heart attack, you know, and heart attack, yeah. they were they were saying something about treating women with respect or something. And, you know, it wasn't a recent thing I saw. And these people posted just like, yeah, coming from a bunch of dudes, it's like you don't understand what that would have gone in 1984 there were not there weren't a lot of people speaking positively or on behalf of anyone's rights you know it's like i mean there were a lot of great bands don't get me wrong like but you know, it's just, it's just, it's all about context, right? And today, somebody can make that comment today, but they don't, they're not thinking like, what was the environment like in 1984 in that scene? And was there any other band on that bill who said anything like that? Probably not, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of the, you know, who was a really good band? Dead Silence. Oh, yeah. I saw Dead Silence from Colorado, and I remember uh, the singer Kevin. He was saying some stuff, and I was like, man, I was like, this is cool. He was just like, he got everybody really motivated, really pumped. He was like saying, this is not a spectator sport. Everybody move the fuck up. It was like, oh, wow. You know, I remember him. I remember... I want to say like Kevin Seconds probably said something really cool at an early show that kind of, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. I remember Ray Capo getting some shit at the show the first time I saw them because he was talking about stuff and it was all super on this positive. And, you know, there were at that time, there were so many, like a lot of crossover and some dude said something to him and he goes, what, what? He goes, what, what do you want to say? And he hands the guy and he goes, what? He goes, if somebody fucking gives you a quarter, what are you going to fucking write a song about it? Like, <laughs> brutal. Like, really, like, what? So what? Like, if somebody gives you a quarter and you're going to write a song about it? Like, I was like, what? He's like, hey, man, fuck you. You can go to your fucking Slayer shit or whatever. He's just like, 
Ray Capel kind of lost it and just said a bunch of shit. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There were a few people that, and it wasn't necessarily what they said on stage, but there were definitely lyrics that, I mean, really hit me, right? So Crass was always a huge mm-hmm. deal for me. I loved early conflict. I saw Reagan youth. I loved Reagan youth. You know, they they really, I don't know, their sort of tongue-in-cheek approach. I mean, I, the first time I heard of Reagan youth and heard Reagan youth, I was scared. I was like, oh, no, 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 this is, like, weird. You know, I was like, I thought at first it was white power. I couldn't figure it out. And my friend and I, we were, like, kind of analyzing, looking at the whole record and realized that it wasn't. And, you know, I ended up seeing them. They were great. I mean, there were a lot of amazing bands who lyrically really – spoke to me a lot of the old peace punk stuff was huge for me you know Mm. and you know i didn't have the opportunity to see all those bands or all that but definitely i read lyric sheets i was like a person who was like certain bands really stuck to me like i was like whoa this is super cool i like that you know um you know, the beginning of like the MDC song, I remember, you know, yes. that song when he does that thing. I mean, I remember hearing that and my fucking getting goosebumps and just that intro with the doom, doom, you know, the song. And he's like saying that I remember at age 13, I'm like, oh, my God, like just this hair is on the back of my neck standing up. You know, there's certain things about punk and certain punk songs that when you hear it, you're like, oh, like it, it, there's it something is. about it that just ignites something in you, you know? Yeah. So. Were speaking on stage and explaining the songs always something that was important to you or did that come kind of as the audience was expanding? I think it was always important to me. Like I did it from day one. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't know why or how or why I did that. It just, it it just happened, you know? Um, You know, there was a point that it was really, it was expected of me and I hated it. I hated it. I hated it because I felt like I couldn't just go, and just play songs people like expected me to do it and then i felt like there was too much pressure around that and then like at the end of a show i would be really just i just felt mentally wiped out by it you know um you know it, it was weird i i think there was a period where i kind of re, not rejected it i just kind of moved away from it and I remember when I was living in Santa Ana in the early 2000s, I came up on a video and it was from a show, I want to say maybe in Philly. And I I was listening to myself and I was like, wow, I said that, (laughs) you know, it was like, oh, wow. I don't even remember like talking about that or saying that. And that's, I think I was impressed by my own self because I had forgotten. Like I, I, I think with Limpress, Limpress was the, re- it was a bit of a relief for me because it was like about something else that was very important to me, but it was very different, mm-hmm. you know? And I felt like, I don't know. I just felt like it was a different, it was just different. And you know, I had not listened to myself. I don't like to generally listen to myself, like on recordings and stuff. So it was it was weird. But when I kind of came up on this video, I was watching it and I was like, wow, okay. 
And, you know, I, and I had to acknowledge that that was important to some people, you Definitely. know? Um, Definitely. Yeah. I find it also, it's two different parts of your brain that you're using. Like when you're on stage and you're just, you know, screaming and you're doing your lyrics, like that, that's something which is, is very different than when you actually have to stop and intellectualize something and try and put your words together in a cohesive manner. And you're not, you know, reading from a script or reading from a speech. Like it just, it just like now being on stage, like I was impressed by it watching it at the time, but now being on stage, I'm even more impressed by it because it's such a hard stop for the brain to do. And especially mm -hmm. when you guys had such short songs too. So you had less time to make those adjustments. It was exhausting. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I, 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 I recall, you know, ending a show and just feeling like I want to hide. Like I just felt so vulnerable and it was weird. It was different, you know, but it also was natural as it happened. I felt a lot of, you know, almost always, I just felt like that's just what I did, you know, but yeah, it's weird. Well, this has been unbelievable. And now I think we hit what you said was going to be the, the bedtime time of another after hour, but we cut it. Yeah please come back please come back because as i say there's so much more just invite me that's all you got to do is invite <laughs> thank you martin for coming on the show and you heard right there all i gotta do is reach out and he'll be back for a part two so that will be happening at some point in the near future because there's a lot oh my gosh there's a lot more to cover uh so amazing to get to do that because you know here we are all these years later and I'm still learning from Martine. You can find also some of those videos from that Toronto week that was so pivotal in my life on YouTube. And I think pivotal in a lot of people in Toronto's lives. So if you look in that Who's Emma video, you see right up front, there's Mike from Fucked Up. There's Ryan from No Warning. It's it's uh, the, the, that Los Crudos show in Toronto, truly defining. They've got, anyway, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting into footnotes right here, so... Uh, coming up on the next episode of the show, my buddy, my, my friend who I have not gotten to talk to in a very long time, and then finally got to catch up with him for this episode, Barry from Joyce Manor will be here on the show and it rules. It's a super fun conversation and I'm very excited for y'all to get to hear it. All right. That is it for today's show. Remember as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. Uh, we need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths because the, the reality is, you know, I say this each week and every week, but these aren't political issues. These are just basic human rights issues. People just need to be able to live their lives and be free and, you know, free from violence. And uh, anyway, so... There's a lot of stuff going on in this world right now. Get involved. Get, you know, let your voice be heard. Because I believe you and me, the other side, certainly let their voice be heard on some of these things. Look at, look at the, the, the pro-choice, you know, situation in some states in America right now. And it's, it's heating up in Canada, too. The fact that people are trying to take away people's right to choose what to do with their reproductive systems. Uh, in the name of, I don't know what in the name of, but it just feels like this is just a return to something that we'd move past. So get involved, you know, lend your support, be it your voice, be it your body, like just 
just try and uh, you know you know see what you can do. See if you can get involved in organizations that are doing cool work or what's happening around you. Try and meditate. You know, I, I gotta I gotta say I haven't done it in a while. I'm gonna hold myself accountable and say that I gotta do it because it definitely does help and I think it makes people's lives around me easier. So I promise you, after I finish recording this, even though it's super late at night, I'm gonna sit down and, and do a little bit of a meditation just to Get ready for uh, the next day, and because uh, yeah, it just it, it can help. You know, I didn't believe in it, and here I am, extolling its virtues. You know, so maybe try it for you. And now I've seen what it does when I don't do it, so I believe in it even a little bit more. Uh, go out there and make your own culture, because anyone can do this shit. And you know, look at the influence you can have. Martine is is the perfect example of someone that has produced DIY art of various kinds that has influenced people around the world and, and just offered so much in what he's done. So, you know, you you don't know what's going to happen with the stuff you create, you you know, start a band. It could be starting a fanzine, you know, you could be making documentaries. Who knows what it is. It could just be drawing a picture, but it also will help your mental health. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because when they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them and it can help people and make their lives better. I've seen it. And that is it. I will see you on the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Goodbye.